The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And for the rest of us, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Elder Tim's already read that passage, and that is really helpful for us. We're all set up to just walk through it and glean what I trust will be some important truths from the life of these, the life and ministry of these 72 that Jesus sends out. And we will also talk about some tougher issues about the levels of judgment and what that all means, as we also heard in Tim's reading of that text. But if you remember with me just last week, where we were, we were walking with Jesus from a Samaritan village that he had just been, he and his disciples had just been rejected, and they're moving to another unidentified village, and three other what I call disciple hopefuls. We're not told whether they believed in Jesus and followed Jesus. We're not told if they didn't. We're not told, in, told anything. But three disciple hopefuls come along Jesus. And in those three encounters, we are given three very important insights into the nature of true discipleship. If, if you believe in Jesus, you'll follow Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you can claim to believe in him. And Jesus laid out very plainly what it means to follow him. And we saw that Last week, Ultimately, it requires a supernatural change of heart by the Holy Spirit for you to be able to follow Jesus the way he requires. And now we are in chapter 10, verse 1, and Luke signals to us when this happened. We're not told exactly when. We're just holding, told it happened after that incident, that encounter with those three disciple hopefuls. Luke says, after this, and that's a chronological marker. This is something that happened chronologically after that incident. That episode of the three disciple hopefuls, we're just not told exactly when. But this is what Luke tells us. What does Jesus do? It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him where he was going to go himself. And now this is an important point to make. These were 72 others. And this is held to be uh, by interpreters to refer to those other than the 12 disciples. So ministry now is moving out beyond Jesus's inner 12. And we saw this starting to happen even uh, a couple of weeks ago when there was this someone casting out demons. John had noticed he's casting out demons in your name. And Jesus, we tried to stop him because clearly that would be the right thing to do because he's not one of us. So we tried to stop him. And Jesus said, don't stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So the ministry of the gospel is now spreading out beyond the disciples. And rather than be jealous, even as we'll see today in this text, rather than be jealous, it's something that actually is working to your advantage, disciples. So these are going to be 72 others beyond the uh, disciples, the inner 12. That's what I believe, and that's uh, what several other interpreters take to be the case. So that's one point. But a second point is if you're reading this in the New American Standard or the ESV, all the major translations from the KJV to the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, they say that it's 72. But you might have a footnote, depending on what version you're using, you might have a footnote that takes you down and says some manuscripts say 70. And that is the case in the, the history of copying these manuscripts from the original text. At some point, someone introduced, I, I think someone introduced 70, uh, introduced the, the number 70 because they thought they were probably correcting a previous error because they're thinking along the lines of how often 70 is used in the Old Testament. And the thinking among the scribes would have been, okay, there's 70 used often and in important places in the Old Testament. Therefore, this 72 must be an error. So I'm going to correct it. And that's how that correction made its way into the subsequent copies of the manuscripts from uh, during the early distribution of in writing of these New Testament manuscripts and the copying of these manuscripts in the early first century. So I do think we are warranted to see that this is meant to be 72, that this is not some sort of symbolic reference to something happening in the Old Testament, but rather uh, simply an indication that beyond the 12 disciples, gospel ministry is spreading. And so we are going to, the, we're going to use the phrase 72. That's the phrase that's used in here and then in verse 17 when they return. And so that's what we are looking at. These are 72 others that Jesus is going to send before him on a preparatory mission or a short-term mission, you might say. And I say a preparatory because Jesus is planning to go to these places as well and he sends them out. 
Well, what is going on? What is he going to do? He's going to send these 72 out ahead of him two by two, which was simply a common way of traveling in the ancient Near East. It's not necessarily required for us today, although you will have missionaries come to the door two by two. Occasionally, typically they're Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, but they will go two by two, typically seeing this as a, uh, a requirement, but it's not. It's simply the way you would have traveled in the ancient years, and just uh, it's also wise. It's wise to travel in this way, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus is going to point that out. It's wise to travel not by yourself when you're traveling in these, these kinds of situations. But he wants to begin, before we talk about that, Jesus is going to begin with a hopeful encouragement. He's going to give them an exhortation, but it's going to be grounded in a hopeful encouragement. And it's this. He says in verse 2, he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so you have a hopeful and a sobering reality here. The hopeful reality is that the harvest is plentiful. It, it, there is, you're out looking across this field of souls, and Jesus is saying the harvest is is plentiful. He's going to say more than that, but at least at this point he's saying that the harvest is plentiful. And based on that statement, based on that reality, you should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more harvesters. And you know, since we've been uh, ramping up our door-to-door evangelism here in the last several months at CBC, on uh, the first Saturday of the month, you, you we gather together by the fellowship hall and we We hear a a quick devotional word and we're sent out into the surrounding neighborhoods to share the gospel. And we don't go in groups of two by two. We typically go in groups of four, thereby violating this text apparently. But but we go go in in larger groups and we're sharing the gospel. But once this, this started, you know, I've started to have several very edifying conversations with a number of our CBC members about what you should expect when you share the gospel. What should you expect when you share the gospel? You should be asking yourself this question. What should you be expecting? What does the New Testament tell us to expect? Well, on the one hand, we should expect rejection because Jesus tells us in other texts that the way is narrow, the, 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 the gate is narrow, and the, the few find that narrow gate and that way into life. We know that the gospel is offensive to the natural heart, that gospel of Christ's righteousness and then his death on the cross and that you've uh, committed a sin against God, and you, uh, He requires uh, justice from you. He must punish that sin, and but He has poured all of His justice upon Jesus Christ on your behalf. Well, all of that is quite offensive, and especially when you start saying, and not only that, but this is the only way to heaven. That can become offensive, and so you can, on the one hand, based on what the New Testament teaches, you can expect rejection, but that is not the full story. Not even close. On the other hand, Jesus just said right here, the harvest is plentiful. So you should expect gospel reception. And frankly, how we understand these things and how we embrace these two truths will affect your conduct and your methodology in evangelism. If you think that you're only going to receive rejection, then you will become cynical, you'll share the gospel, and you'll just leave that person and be like, well, they're not going to believe anyways, forget about you, I'm going to go on and and do uh, and meet with this person and so on. So you just kind of create a kind of cynicism. Whereas on the other hand, if you think you're only going to receive reception, you might be uh, you might be tempted to kind of tweak the gospel a little bit so that every person you talk to believes in Jesus or accepts Jesus or some form of that. You need to hold on to both of these realities, realities that are clearly portrayed in this text, that there is gospel rejection, but there is also gospel reception, and a lot of it. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, so plentiful that part of your work as a laborer will be to pray for more laborers to go out into that plentiful harvest and grab all of those people whom the Lord has plan to save by his grace. It's kind of the picture of a a foreman looking out over this vast field of wheat. And he and he can see and he's he can see that this is going to be a very very profitable harvest. It's going to be, you're going to just take in a lot. But he also just has a couple of workers with him and he's looking over to the workers and he's like, "Listen guys, you're going to have to labor diligently because we have so much to bring in." But you're also going to need to remind me to get on the phone to call more laborers because we're going to need it to make the most of this harvest. 
And I think the question for us as we just walk through this passage and try to glean uh, application for us is the question I think immediately presents itself is, do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? Do you pray, Lord Jesus, keep raising up and sending out faithful laborers into the places I can't go? This actually is one of the most encouraging texts in the New Testament for me with regards to evangelism. Jesus is encouraging you to pray for uh, laborers to enter into the harvest, places where you cannot go, do things that you cannot do. You know, we all differ in our gifts, and especially when it comes to evangelism. We differ in our gifts. We differ in our settings. We differ in our backgrounds. We differ in the people that we are able to interact with. We differ in our job situation and a whole host of other things. A number of us not me, but a number of us are mommies with young kids. That's going to affect your evangelism prospects. But every Christian should long for and love to see people getting saved by the gospel. Every Christian. If you've been touched by the gospel, if you know what it means to be redeemed from eternal judgment and delivered from the power of sin in your life, at the very least, you should want that for everyone. And so because of that, we should also equally long for Christ to raise up skilled evangelists and apologists and preachers and teachers to go out to the greater community, the Bay Area, California, the USA, and the world with the gospel to win as many possible people as we can to Christ. So this is very encouraging. Because I want to see loads of people come to Christ. Just full disclosure Sunday, I want to see lots of people come to Jesus Christ. And I know you do too as well, but here's the deal. I am exceedingly limited. I am limited in my abilities. I am limited in my gifts. I am limited in my time. I am limited in my energy. I am limited in my reach and influence. And so are you. And yet there is this desire to see the gospel go everywhere and save many people. So one very important ministry that I can have and that you can have regardless of your station in life, and I hope this is encouraging to mommies with young kids, one of the most important ministries you can have is praying diligently that God would raise up more laborers for the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. There are people everywhere who are ready to hear that gospel, to receive it. We even met one or a few even last uh, two weeks ago when we went out on our uh, door-to-door evangelism. One lady in particular, when we said and we just explained to her the forgiveness of sins that Christ has paid for all of your sins, she said, that is good news. And we're like, it is good news. You recognize that. So people are, the, the harvest is plentiful. So how should we pray? How should we pray? Again, just should be very encouraging as you think through what what, does, what do people need in the world? This, this is how we should pray. God, raise up many skilled, humble, and obedient evangelists who are able to reach the people I can't reach, which it happens to be about 99.9999% of the world. Please, Lord, raise up faithful apologists who can decimate unbelieving arguments and show people the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Lord Jesus, train up many courageous men and women who have the unique ability to turn every conversation to the gospel and who are willing to take the gospel into every situation and, and uh, find people who are faithfully preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel to bring alongside of them. God, give your people the wisdom they need to navigate challenging work situations in order to share the gospel with others. There are people out there who I know can, who can do things that I simply cannot do. When I see someone who's able to just turn every conversation, it doesn't matter if you're talking about jelly beans, they can bring the conversation back to Jesus. And that requires a certain amount of skill. It requires a certain amount of courage. And, and you may not feel so adept at that. You're not able to do it, but you can at least pray that God would continue to raise up people like that. You may not feel so skilled in apologetics where you can shoot down the arguments and bring the gospel in to show that how superior it is to whatever that person is believing. Maybe you're not great at that. That's okay. Pray that the Lord would raise up people like that. So isn't this text encouraging? And Jesus, all he said is the harvest is plentiful, and then pray for more laborers. 
So interestingly, Jesus is speaking here to the laborers and telling them to pray. So the, the call to pray is not uh, an excuse to not labor, but it should be an encouragement, particularly when we know our gifts are limited, they differ from others, and we are in unique stations of life. And not all of us can evangelize the way we want to. Not all of us are as skilled or as gifted in that area. Nevertheless, all of us, I think, are called to at least share the gospel with the, the people around us, the people that we know. So Jesus lays alongside that what I think is a very encouraging note, another balancing, sobering reality, that of difficulty. Difficulty. So he's, he's laying out the great encouragement. Here's the, the field. You see that field? This wide acreage of wheat. Go get it. And it's going to be really hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be dangerous even. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs, we know, are vulnerable. They're exposed. And they're generally helpless when they are in the midst of wolves. If the shepherd isn't nearby. We know that. People naturally have a deep aversion to the gospel. The truth of our sinfulness, as we've already mentioned, and the reality of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, those things are offensive to the human heart, so offensive that people may malign you because of the gospel. They may even try to harm you. So not everyone is going to respond favorably to the gospel. That's the balance we have here, isn't it? That's why the title is Rejection and Reception. Jesus just said the harvest is plentiful, but here's the balancing reality. You're not always going to get reception. You're going to meet some rejection. And so that you won't be blasted to and fro by that rejection and maybe start trying to take notches off the gospel like, ooh, I don't like all this rejection. Maybe if I soften it a little bit, they'll like me better. So that you won't get tossed to and fro or be tempted to compromise, Jesus is telling you ahead of time, you are being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, here's the encouraging thing. These 72 lambs who were sent out in the midst of wolves, do you know how many were lost during this missions trip? Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. So, even though you're sent out into dangerous territory, your shepherd, as he promises in Matthew 28, he is with you. He's with you every step of the way. It doesn't mean that you might not be martyred, but your shepherd is with you everywhere you go so that he is protecting you, providing for you, enabling you, and he loves you. I've told you ahead of time that I'm sending you out as weak, vulnerable lambs in the midst of ferocious wolves so that you will know and so that you will rely upon protection. You know, I'm amazed that um, over the years that I've been able to engage in evangelism, we've been in some situations, never in a kind of uh, exceedingly hostile or martyr-type situation, but you're talking to some rough folks and you're telling them about their sin and you're telling them about the gospel. And... The Lord has provided and protected in all those situations unique, in unique and remarkable ways. And so you can trust the Lord. And this is, this is an indication that you can trust the Lord Jesus. Now, there's no therefore here uh, when he explains that he's sending them as lambs in the midst of wolves. But he does say in verse 4, carry no money bag, so that it seems like this is the meaning, this is the flow even though the word therefore is not there, it, it does seem like this is the flow. You are going out to, you're going to be in danger like lambs in the midst of wolves as I send you out. Therefore, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In light of the danger that you're going to encounter, you need to travel light. You need to avoid the possibility of robbery. So don't carry extra goods with you. And the phrase greet no one on the road, that's not an excuse for disciples to be rude. Okay, let's just make that really clear so that you, you, you kind of, you're acting rude to people. You're like, well, Jesus said don't greet anyone on the road. So, I mean, see, it's right there. That's not what's happening here at all. They're, they're being exhorted to be nimble, to be quick, to be efficient, to move along smoothly and efficiently because the roads between towns in these times were dangerous. If you kind of elongated a, a conversation with someone and a greeting, that opens you up to possibility of being robbed on the road. The, these roads were populated with thieves because 
as you were traveling from point A to point B, there wasn't a lot of people, there weren't many crowds, and so that you could get mugged easily without anybody really knowing about it, without you being able to cry out for help. That's why you see people traveling in large groups or uh, two by two as they move from city to city. But Jesus' exhortation here is very practical. You need to be efficient. You need to move along. You can't take time to have these long greetings, which are typical in the ancient Near East. They're, they're having these kind of long greetings. and talk. You need to move on from town to town. And so he's being exceedingly practical here. And this is an important principle as well, as we're just trying to glean principles for our own lives. It is no sign of spiritual maturity to, to throw yourself into unnecessary harm or danger in service to the gospel. Now, he just said that by sheer nature of the, the case, by sheer nature of the mission itself, you're going to be in danger. It's just So you don't need to add danger upon danger. There is a sanctified common sense here that you can use so that you can avoid unnecessary danger. And in fact, Jesus would even tell his disciples in Matthew 10, 23, that there's an appropriate time to flee a town if you're being persecuted there. So Jesus is just giving them practical counsel about how to avoid unnecessary trouble and complete the mission that he gave them, to not endanger it due to some hyped up, what you think is spiritual foolishness. Now, is this a specific counsel that we are bound to obey? Is Jesus somehow suggesting that we should take no supplies with us as we move from place to place in our evangelistic endeavors, on our short-term missions trips, you might say? And I would argue, no, this is specific for this group. And the reason why we can be so confident in that and say that this is not something that we have to abide by slavishly as though it's some sort of command is because of what Jesus says in Luke twenty-two thirty-five later. So this is going to be just before his death. He's going to be uh, sending them out um, later, post-death and resurrection. He said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, and he wasn't sending them out barefoot, by the way. Uh, he was sending them out without an extra pair of sandals, is most likely what he means. Did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So he's actually telling them that you need to equip yourself differently now than you did back then. Which is why I think we can say, be, they say confidently that this is not an example that we must follow to the T. Well, Jesus' statement here in Matthew 22 reaffirms that that's the case. So we, we, we can glean, and this is how we need to study these narratives, we can glean uh, important principles from them, but as you compare Scripture with Scripture, you can also determine where certain narratives are simply descriptive, they're describing what happened, and not necessarily prescriptive telling you what you must do in every case and here I think we have some description of how Jesus simply told his 72 what they should do and how they should travel efficiently from place to place in this short-term missions trip so now what are they supposed to do so he's he's given them he's given them the the encouragement with that it's a harvest is plentiful he's told them how to travel he's given them the sobering reality that this is going to be dangerous and this is how they conduct themselves this is interesting Whatever house you enter, say first, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Now, what does this phrase, son of peace or peace be to this house mean? Well, remember, we are in Israel and we are among Israelites, Jewish towns, with the king in their presence. The king has arrived. And I think we're to see this passage in connection with an earlier passage in the Old Testament. If you want to turn over to 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 8, this is a very interesting connection that I think we're supposed to make and that they were supposed to make as well, at least the readers of Luke's gospel are to make it. Luke, uh, 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 8. What's the context of this? Well, uh, David is still on the run from Saul. 
David is the rightful king. Saul is the um, aggressor. He is not the rightful king anymore. David is, and he is, Saul is jealous of David, and he's trying to kill him. So Saul is pursuing David. David is on the run. He's still on the run. And so that is the context. First, oh, I need, I need to turn to the right chapter. Here we go. First, and not only that, but uh, Samuel has just died as well. That's an important, the prophet Samuel has just died as well. That's an important piece to the context. So it says in verse, uh, the latter part of verse 1, And David arose and went to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, or Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears, and your shepherds have been with us, and we did not did them no harm, and they miss nothing uh, all the time that they are in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will find. Uh, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have uh, on hand to your servants and to your son David. Okay, so let's bring the parallels together here. Notice that there are, I think, some significant parallels. Jesus is sending his 72 ahead of him in a preparatory mission. David is also sending his men ahead of him to Nabal's home in a preparatory mission. Jesus, is, Jesus instructed the 72 to say, whatever house you enter, say peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, but if not, your peace will return to you. David tells the men to say to Nabal, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace to all that you have. Jesus tells his disciples to eat the provisions they offer you. David tells his men to request provisions from Nabal. Why are these so important? Why are these parallels important? I think they're important because the signal is meant to be the son of David, the son, capital S son. The son of David is here. He is among you, and he has sent his men before him to prepare his way. They are announcing that the king of Israel is here. No longer David, but the son of David. A son of peace, in this case, would have been someone who's looking for and welcoming the, the son of David. Someone who understood the scriptures, who is believing the scriptures, who is anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and who would have welcomed the son of David's messengers, namely Jesus. This son of peace is what you would call a true Israelite. Not everybody in Israel was a true Israelite. Not everybody believed in Yahweh. Not everyone received Yahweh's king. So the son of peace would be someone who receives the, the messengers. And when you find such a home, Jesus says, stay there. Receive their hospitality. They are serving Yahweh. They are serving the Messiah. They are serving his Messiah and serving Yahweh by serving his messengers. And make this house of peace this person of peace, make this house your home base as you minister to this town and don't go from house to house. So the question is, is why not go from house to house? And it's difficult to say. It may be a practical instruction. You know, ministry is more effective if you remain in one location where you know you'll have an ally, especially if it's potential that you're not going to have allies in these other homes in the town. Or if you, or Jesus might be saying, you're not to seek more food and entertainment by going house to house, which would may have been more ostentatious and you're, you're, you're seeking things that you shouldn't rather than just being food, uh, fed the food that you deserve in a uh, par particular house. So Jesus is saying avoid that ostentatious kind of air and rather just remain in one place, eat what they give you, and then move on to the next town. So that's how they're supposed to conduct themselves, receive their hospitality. You are the king's messengers. Do not go from house to house. And here's how, what they're supposed to do. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat whatever, whatever is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to give them irrefutable evidence 
that the king's men and the king himself is here. The kingdom of God has come upon you. But not everyone is going to be a son of peace. Not everyone is going to receive you. You've already been told that earlier, and so you need to be aware of that. And when they don't, here's what you're to do. Verse 10, whenever you enter town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So like the prophets of old, when they, these king's men, when Jesus is 72, meet with rejection, they are to act out a sign of judgment. In this case, they are to do this kind of act where they are said they are wiping off or dusting off the dust that clings to their feet. They're wiping it off against this town. Now, this act could have been a pointer to the idea that they were now signaling that these towns were under God's judgment, something that apparently the Jews did historically is that as they came from Gentile Nations, they'd wipe off the dust from their feet, from their sandals, because they believed even the dust of the Gentile nations was defiling. So it could be, we're not told exactly, but it could be the case that this, this graphic act of judgment is you go out into the town square and you wipe off the dust off your feet. It could be that they're saying that you are now clearly outside of God's favor. In other words, you are the Gentiles, which would have been devastating for them to consider. Those who don't believe in Jesus are Gentiles regardless of their ethnicity. By using this graphic signal, the 72 were saying, we are leaving your town, we are not coming back, your opportunity to receive the Messiah has passed, we have done our duty, and by wiping off the dust of our feet against you, we are saying graphically that your judgment will be severe. The king of Israel has sent his messengers ahead of him to announce his reign and you have rejected us, which means you have rejected him, which means you have rejected God, who you think you know and serve. But notice the phrase, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. That's the exact same phrase there to use when they heal the sick and people receive them. It doesn't matter if you receive them or you reject them. The, the kingdom of God has come near the kingdom of God is real. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is real by doing these healings as we saw a few weeks ago. Jesus is breaking in. The, the kingdom is breaking into their present existence. This, this is irrefutable proof that the kingdom is coming. So whether you receive or whether you reject, nevertheless know that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Your subjective acceptance or rejection doesn't alter the reality that there is a kingdom coming that the king is real, that the king is true. And so understand what you're doing as you go into these places. Now, some of you might be wondering, again, Derek, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Because I have heard of someone literally wiping off the dust of their feet towards a group of people due to their rejection of the gospel. And this is just recently. And I scratched my head and I thought, is that, should we do that? So maybe you're wondering, should you do that? Should you give off graphic depictions of a group of people's judgment based on their reception of the gospel? And I would say no. I don't think it's appropriate response for us because, and this is why, we are not Jewish ministers ministering the gospel in Israel at a major turning point in redemptive history. The rejection of the 72 that they experience and that Jesus experiences in these cities is the climax of centuries of rejection by the people of Israel. For multiple centuries, God has been pouring out revelation and grace upon a nation that by and large rejects him. So that when the Messiah himself, when God in the flesh himself comes to visit and sends out his messengers... It is horrific that you would reject, but you can see that it is the climax of centuries of rejection. The king is in their midst, so this act of judgment, this graphic sign, is meant for Israel specifically. 
And you might say, well, okay, Derek, sure. But did you know, sometimes people will say that, did you know, Derek? And I'll be like, well, I hope so. I, I tried to study for the, the passage, you know. Um, and it, and it, you feel free to say that to me because maybe I did miss something. But did you know, Derek, that Acts 18, 5 through 6, Paul and Barnabas shook off their feet to the, the people in Antioch? And I'd say, I didn't know that until this week. But not only that, they shook off their feet. Um, oh, I didn't get the... They, they did that in Antioch, to the Jews in Antioch. But the, then Paul and Silas and Timothy also did it. So this is a separate instance. They did it two times, once in Antioch. And then also in Acts 5 through 6, they did it again. They're like, see, Derek, it was legit for that person to wipe off their feet uh, to that group of people that you're referring to. And I would say... Not so fast. In both instances where Paul and Barnabas and then Paul, Silas, and Timothy wiped off their feet or dusted off their feet as an act of judgment to the people that they're referring to, do you know who those people were? They were Jews. They were unbelieving Jews. So again, I believe this graphic sign of judgment is reserved for Israel's rejection during the transition from the old to new covenant. I don't think it's necessarily something for Christians to do today to their Gentile neighbors. We're definitely not training our evangelistic team to go door-to-door and do that whenever we meet with rejection. We try to meet with rejection graciously. We try to meet with rejection prayerfully. And I don't think we need to be doing that. Well, rejection, nevertheless, though, here and, and beyond, this is a, we can now, there's an important principle that we can draw for us. Jesus says, in light of that rejection... I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And as a reader of the Old Testament, as someone who would have understood the Old Testament, that should have blown their mind. If I stopped everyone as you're going out today and took a survey to ask you, what is the most evil city in the Old Testament? I think a lot of you would have said the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, just kind of off the, off the fly. Just, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, they seem pretty bad, right? Jesus is making an incredible statement, saying that there is a judgment coming, and Sodom, the, 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 the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will be uh, a recipient of that judgment. But guess what? As wicked as, and as bad as that was back in Genesis, you can go back and read of how bad it was. It was really, really bad. Those who reject the king's messengers when they bring the good news are even open to more and greater judgment in even that wicked city. So then he goes on to say, Woe to you, Chorazin. The word woe is judgment be upon you, severe judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And to you, Capernaum, <clears throat> Capernaum has received tons of miracles up to this point. We've seen a lot of them already in past messages. But they're not believing, by and large. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. And so Jesus is saying that there is a severity of judgment that comes when people hear the gospel and reject it. Now, it's particularly bad for Israel because what I... Remember what I said, this is a climax of centuries of rejection, but the principle holds as well in our time, that to hear the gospel and to reject it is to be in a worse state than to never hear the gospel at all. And that's the principle we have to recognize. And this is remarkable language because in, we've already talked about the use of Sodom here in this passage, but also Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament was considered a very unrighteous City. In fact, in Joel 3, 4 and following, God is, is pronouncing judgment upon Tyre and Sidon, saying that you took advantage of my people, and so you're going to get it, right? God is protecting his people in the Old Testament, and, he, and, and uh, Tyre and Sidon had taken advantage of them and, and done some devastating things, and, and God says, you're going to get it, Tyre and Sidon. But then here, as after Jesus and his messengers have made their way into these towns and they've been rejected, Jesus is saying that that rejection is an indication that those, uh, those cities will be considered more unrighteous than the cities in the Old Testament who are clearly classified as unrighteous. 
Jesus is saying that the even more severe judgment will be upon the Jewish towns that reject Jesus than the ancient towns that mistreated Israel. And again, for a Jew who is sensitive to the Old Testament and understands the Old Testament, these would have been devastating words, hard to believe, words that would probably have made them angry. The king's messengers have come and proclaimed the kingdom. They have displayed miracles to authenticate their mission. They've demonstrated the power of the coming kingdom with these miracles. The kingdom is in breaking. You can know for certain that it is. And those people have rejected you, which means they have rejected me. So these words here in this passage indicate that there are levels of severity of judgment based on how much a person has received in terms of spiritual truth. For those who had access to Jesus' disciples and the message of the gospel but rejected that message, their judgment will be more severe than those who never heard the message at all. Both groups face condemnation, but there will be a greater condemnation for those who reject the king and his messengers. And the, the same is true today. This is, of course, has special application to these towns in Israel. As in terms of the apex of their rejection of God now being, being formalized in their rejection of the Messiah and his messengers. But when people reject King Jesus' messengers, they're not merely rejecting, and, I, and I'm referring to you now, right? In as much as you are a messenger of the king, if you know Christ, you are an ambassador for the Lord Jesus, someone who goes to others to create an alliance between the two, a reconciliation between the two parties. We are Christ's ambassadors whom he sent into hostile territory. When people reject Jesus' messengers, they're not just rejecting religious people, and which a lot of people, I think, they're just like, oh, here come the religious people from Creekside. You know? That's not who they're rejecting. If you are coming in Christ's name and you're preaching the gospel, they're rejecting Christ, which means they're ultimately rejecting God, regardless of their particular profession of a religion. We are Christ's ambassadors whom he has sent into hostile territory to proclaim God's, to God's enemies that he is offering full pardon for their sin. You're walking among God's enemies and saying, listen, there's, there's good news from the king. He will pardon you. Turn to Christ, repent from your sin, and full pardon is available. That's what we're doing as ambassadors. We've been given a message directly from the king to give to his enemies. If you trust in Christ, you will receive complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Positively, to receive Jesus' ambassadors is to receive Jesus himself. It's to receive the creator of the universe. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me and him who sent me. To reject an ambassador, as we know, just in our own lives, is not merely a rejection of that ambassador, but actually, ultimately, a rejection of the nation or the ruler of that nation that sent that ambassador. Those who hear the good news, those who hear these, this, these heralds of pardon, but re refuse to come to Christ, will be in a worse state, in terms of judgment, than the person who has never heard the gospel at all. So the latter part of our message, it began very encouraging. We are going to hopefully end an encouraging note, but we do need to mention these sobering realities. The latter part of our message today is meant to convey the seriousness of remaining stubborn and recalcitrant in the face of the gospel. It is so serious. It's so serious. It's eternally serious. Well, I anticipate that there will be some who reject the gospel message as we go to door to door or as I share the gospel with my neighbor or as I share the gospel with my Muslim Uber driver. I really like Uber for that reason, by the way. Just sit there and, man, you could, we, got, we got 20 minutes. We got 30 minutes. And guess what we're going to do? <laughs> and, and, I, and I understand that there won't always be a positive response. But I do grieve at those who remain unmoved and unconvinced and disinterested. Why? Because of this. Because of this. 
But now I want to tie together the principles, and I want to bring it back to this uh, thing that we said earlier about the harvest being plentiful and the, the prayer that needs to characterize our lives about raising up more gospel ministers. And as much as we can, we should try to follow up with the people we share the gospel with. We're not always able to do that. You might be sharing the gospel in an Uber or on an airplane or with someone you first met, and you may not be able to follow up with them. We should try to follow up, but, we, but, but often we can't. What do we do? Pray, therefore, for the Lord to raise up people to water that seed you just sowed. Pray the way that I just talked about early in the message. Pray for someone who is skilled to come alongside that person who, who you just shared the gospel with, to water that seed, to cultivate that seed. Pray for laborers to go and continue to share the gospel with that person specifically. Now, I went to... Uh, Call it a high school and grade school with the same, a big same group of people, K through 12, went to Catholic school, and there's just this group of us who either were K through 12 all the way or like third, they came in at third grade and we were third grade through uh, high school all the way. And so there's this relationship and this depth of affection that I have for this group of people. And I still stay in contact with them to this day, which I think is unique. I'm not sure, I don't talk to a lot of people who have, you know, they still have relationship with their third grade friends, right? But, but by God's grace, we have. And, and very few of them are, have become believers, but I've shared the gospel with a number of them. But I can't be there. I can't be in Billings. I can't be wherever they're at. They're in Colorado. I can't be where they're at. I can't be next to them. I can't be talk to them constantly. I can't have a Bible study with them during dinner or during lunch. But guess what I can do? I can pray continually that God would bring those kinds of people into their lives to continue to water the seed that hopefully I planted early on. And you can pray that way too. You have people who you care about, who you know need the gospel, but that you probably can't get to, or at least not get to very often. What can you do? Have you been praying for the Lord to raise up people to come alongside them and to share the gospel with them? We, here, here's, here's the encouraging thing about that. We tend to feel an unnecessary weight when we forget that we are not alone in our evangelistic endeavors. We are responsibility for evangelism is responsibility shared by the whole church. And I don't just mean Creekside. I mean the whole church, universal. All Christians. When you share the gospel with a family member, or in the neighborhood, when we go door to door, pray that the Lord would continue to send laborers to share with the person you just, or to continue to share with the person you just spoke with. The work of evangelism does not begin and end with you, which is implicit in this passage where Jesus is sending out 72 beyond the 12, right? Disciples, you 12, evangelism doesn't begin and end with you. And rather than be jealous, be like, oh, thank you, Lord. Don't be jealous. Thank God. Pray for more laborers. Our door-to-door -door work that we are doing on the first Saturdays of the month, uh, first Saturdays of the month, when we're doing this, we are ultimately laboring so that people will be saved, not ultimately so that they'll come to Creekside. We are laboring so that they'll be saved. Now, it would be wonderful. We want them to, to come in, into this fellowship because we want to be able to shepherd and minister to them, and we'd love that. But we ultimately want them to be saved and brought into a faithful fellowship wherever that may be in the area, whether that's Creekside or some other faithful church in the area. If we plant the seed with a gospel tract or conversation at someone's front door on a Saturday morning, and months later, another Christian comes alongside, maybe at work, and shares the gospel and continues to water that seed, and that person gets saved at work, praise God! So we continue to pray that the Lord would raise up faithful servants. We will be faithful to spread the gospel in this neighborhood because we believe that's what God has given to us as a stewardship. We feel a responsibility for this area in particular because this is where we're located. So we're going to continue to, to do this area and, and try to, to reach this community. We love this community. This is where God has put us. But what we ultimately want to see is people be saved. And so when we're going door to door, let us continue to pray that the Lord would raise up even more laborers to go out into his harvest. We want to see the gospel triumph through the Bay Area. So we pray that God raise up more faithful laborers. So this, gospel, this 
passage does have a note of warning, as we've seen, and we'll just address this as we close. If you are here, maybe you've been coming for a little bit, this is your first time, maybe you've been listening in for a while, and you, you realize that what we're saying is true, what comes out of the scripture is true, Jesus is real, but you don't want to bow the knee to him, you don't want to turn from your sin and believe in him and give up whatever that is you're holding on to, whether it's just a particular sin, particular set of sins, or just independence, independence from God. If you're currently rejecting faith in Christ, you're preparing greater condemnation for yourself in the future. While you are not in Israel during the ministry of the 72, God has nevertheless given you the marvelous high privilege of hearing the preaching of the gospel. God has allowed you in his goodness to hear that the king has come, that he has died the death that you deserve on the cross for your sins against God, that he rose again, and that he now reigns from heaven calling you to repent from your sin and trust in him for the full forgiveness of your sins. And you don't need to do something, keep doing something to work yourself up to forgiveness. It's a free gift given to you by faith, by grace alone. It's free, but God is calling you to turn to Him and to turn from your sin. If you reject that message, you're storing up for yourself greater condemnation than if than you would if you hadn't heard the gospel at all. So the, you are being given a massive opportunity right now. People talk about a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a once-in-eternity opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. Turn from your sin. Give up that pursuit of wealth and power and prestige for the gift of God's forgiveness of your sin, that gift of eternal life, that gift of inward transformation. But you might say, I don't care for wealth, power, and prestige. Okay, perhaps, but you have other particular sins that you love, perhaps a set of sexual sins or something else. Or you just, like I said earlier, you just want to be independent of God. Maybe that's where you're at. You don't want to be hemmed in by God's good and righteous law. My encouragement to you, the encouragement of this text would be to be stubborn no longer. Turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of salvation. God will change you on the inside so that you love the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the multiple truths that we can glean from it. Even though it was embedded in a particular narrative, a particular time in Israel's history, nevertheless, we can glean important truths for our lives that are still true to this day. Thank you so much for the encouragement to pray for more laborers. God, we just need to be reminded more and more of that. Evangelism doesn't begin and end with us. Continue to raise up leaders, servants, preachers, teachers, apologists within our congregation and around the world and around the Bay Area. We ask that you do it for your glory and for the good of people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.